This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading this morning can be found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. And if you're using the Black Bible in your pew, that's page 809, Matthew 5, 3 through 6. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we're really thankful that you're here this morning. Would you, uh, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, it's not lost on me that I can't help the people in this room, but you can. Jesus, I can't help the people in this room, but you can. Spirit of God, I can't help the people in this room, but you can. You can change us. You can transform us. You can open our eyes. You can convict us of sin. You can comfort the weary. You can strengthen the weak. Would you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves again this morning? through your living and active word. We really beg for you to change us, to humble us, to make us poor in spirit this morning. We beg to see you, Jesus, more clearly, more clearly than we did when we woke up. So be with us, give us attentive hearts and souls, eyes and ears this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So when, when Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached through this section of scripture in the 1950s, he confessed that he didn't really feel like it. He didn't really feel like it. He explains at the beginning of his two-volume set of sermons that he preached on the Sermon on the Mount that he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to preach through these texts, but he felt a certain sense or a certain kind of compulsion that drove him to it. And he did it because of what he called the present condition of the life of the Christian church. He says, I quote, I do not think it is a harsh judgment to say that the most obvious feature of the life of the Christian church today is, alas, its superficiality. The important thing for us is to discover the cause for this. For myself, I would suggest that one of the main causes is our attitude to the Bible, our failure to take it seriously and our failure to take it as it is and to allow it to speak to us, end quote. This same assault on the church 
that was going on in the United Kingdom in the 1950s also threatens us today. What keeps us today, right now, from being able to listen to the Bible? We listen to media more than we listen to the Bible. We listen to influencers more than we listen to the Bible. We listen to our friends or our coworkers or our extended family more than we listen to and submit to the clear instructions of the Word of God that we have at our fingertips. And as we spend the next few weeks in the Beatitudes, I want us to try really, really hard to listen. To listen and to accept and to believe and to apply the Bible to our lives. I want us to watch out for places that we tend to argue with the Bible. I want us to watch out for places that we rationalize or minimize the Bible. I want us to pay close attention to our hearts because this, this sermon and this sermon from Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, should offend us. This sermon will cause you to say at some points, that's impossible, so I'm just not even going to try. This sermon from Jesus will corner us. It'll be the struggle and pain of a good surgeon who's willing to hurt us so that no more harm comes to us. It is the pain of a loving doctor who's willing to sting us in order to heal us. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, beware of the spirit of arguing against the Beatitudes. Beware of making them ridiculous. Beware of so interpreting them as to regard any one of them as impossible. Here is the life to which we are called. And I maintain again that if only every Christian in the church today were living the Sermon on the Mount, the great revival for which we are praying and longing would already have started. Amazing and astounding things would happen and the world would be shocked and men and women would be drawn and attracted to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Throughout our time in this series, I want to say over and over and over again and make it really clear that Jesus is not saying he is not saying that he is looking for people that fit the bill. Who can do this? Who can behave this way? And he's not saying that those people, the people who can already behave this way, are the people who qualify to enter into his kingdom. He is not saying that. He's not saying behave this way in order to get into my kingdom. He's saying because you're in my kingdom, behave this way. Behave this way. Way Jesus will give his life so that we can be redeemed from all lawlessness and be purified as a people for his own possession, Titus 2.14 tells us. The Beatitudes are a description of character, not an enforcing of a code of conduct. And I also want to hammer home the idea that all Western and Eastern philosophy is consumed with the idea of being happy. The idea of what it means to live a happy life, a blessed life, the good life. From ancient history up till now, philosophers and thinkers and religious gurus have been trying to figure out what's the life that's marked by true human flourishing, excuse me, and I want to say they all miss it. They all get it wrong. This way. This way that Jesus describes and the way that he himself lived is the only way. 
It's the only way. It's the only way to blessedness. It's the only way to truly being happy. It isn't a way among many options. It's the only way. The truth is that the Bible, we must remember, is not interested in being one of many available paths to choose from in your own pick-your-own-adventure story. It's the very Word of God, and God's not kidding. He's explaining to us what the life of blessedness will look like, and this is it. This is the only way. All other catechisms that the world offers are bankrupt. All other ways are wrong. All other strategies are empty. All other offerings are vapid and pale and dead. This is it. And I want us to let that sink in and be honest with ourselves because right now our flesh is scrambling and listening and whispering to ourselves, "Mm, sort of. Kind of. I'll take half of it. I'll take a third of it. We're tempted to say, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, 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 Jesus. I get it. I get it. And I'm going to go ahead and keep some sort of pet sin on the side. But God wants to root that out in us. We're tempted to say, yeah, 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 Jesus, I get it. But I'm going to keep my vodka or I'm going to keep this secret sin, whatever that is the approval of your friends, the rush of technology, the pleasures of laziness, the tastiness of selfishness. Or maybe it's the pride of being more responsible with your money than your neighbor or than your in-laws. Or the pride of having a nicer lawn than the guy across the street. Or the self-righteousness of having more well-behaved kids than somebody else. Or the conceited attitudes of having a better retirement package than the other guy. Whether it's blatant sin or good things that we love in sinful ways, none of them will get us the kind of flourishing that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Jonathan Pennington sums up how we should be hearing Jesus This way, when he says, Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers hearers into the way, a way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing. Their true and full flourishing right now and in the age to come. Through his authoritative and eschatological claims, he is more than an ancient philosopher of happiness, but he's not less. Today, We'll answer the question, what's the formula of the blessed life? And we will march through the first four Beatitudes. But first, I want to I make a technical observation, and I want to give you some instruction and say, hey, don't think of this word blessed. Don't think of this word blessed in the way that God administered blessings and curses based on the obedience of Israel in the Old Testament. God did promise a blessing to is, if, if Israel obeyed and a curse if they disobeyed. God's covenant with Israel had real blessings and real curses that did correspond to their obedience, but these phrases don't work that way. It's even helpful to insert the word because in place of the word for to help you kind of feel the weight of it and help it sink in. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn because. Blessed are the meek because. Blessed are people hungry and thirsty for righteousness because. 
These don't function as conditionals. They don't function as if-then statements. They describe a way of being in the world that's the way of true happiness, true human flourishing. This word blessed is a word for happiness, but it goes so much deeper than the way that we use the word happy today. The word blessed is more of a word that encapsulates the truest, fullest, whole kind of satisfaction and happiness. And in Western philosophy, you find the word eudaimonia, which means the good life. The good life, the life worth living, the life of satisfaction and happiness. And throughout all cultures at all times, there exists a program for how to achieve this. In all cultures and civilizations, there exists a cultural and social pathway saturated with a value system that represents that culture and gets you the good life, supposedly. This is true because you're hardwired to live this way. Human beings are hardwired with a heart that's spring-loaded to sniff out and organize all your strength and all your thoughts and all your will toward the good life. Like the great church father Augustine once said, our hearts are restless. They are restless until they find their rest in God. You want to be happy. You just do. You can't run away from that. You want to be whole and satisfied. You want to flourish. You want to live a life. You want to live a life that tastes good, that beholds goodness, or at least what we think is good. The mechanism to strive after happiness and satisfaction and flourishing, to strive after blessedness, that mechanism inside your soul is part of what it means to be a human being. And the scripture constantly appeals to this reality. Taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good, as opposed to every other good you think you can get in this world. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey on my mouth. Psalm 119. God appeals to this in the Old Testament when he says, through the prophet Jeremiah, I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people should be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Matthew 13. That's an appeal to your desires. That's an appeal to what you see is beautiful and what will get you what you think you need in this life. It's an appeal that takes the longings of the human being into account. Even the addict is drug along by a desire for what claims to make him happy. One man takes a vow of poverty to find happiness and another man amasses all the wealth he can find to find happiness. My point is that human beings possess an internal mechanism that's always hunting, always looking. Human beings have a driver inside them that's constantly on the hunt for the good life. And right here, Jesus explains to us what that is and everything else isn't it. Everything else falls short. He tells us what it is and how it works. And right here, Jesus cuts across the grain of our kind of visceral, emotional responses 
Right here, Jesus explains the upside-down nature of the kingdom, the counterintuitive nature of the kingdom of God, because everything he says in these four verses is a direct assault on the worldly value system. The value system of his day and the value system of our day. This is the deceitfulness of our sin. We in our guts bristle that this is the only way that true happiness works. We don't like it apart from a work of God's spirit. What's the blessed life? It's a life that's poor in spirit, that mourns over sin and brokenness in the world, behaves accordingly to that poverty of spirit, and that's starving for righteousness. Jesus isn't looking for people who behave this way so that they can prove that they belong in his kingdom. Jesus isn't looking for people who behave this way so they can prove that they belong in his kingdom. Jesus looks at the man beating his chest and saying, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says to us right now today, he's the guy that gets it. He's the guy that understands what it's all about. Jesus is saying, that's the guy who knows what's really going on. His is the kingdom of heaven. Christians are not people who aim for happiness in and of itself. Christians are people who know aiming to have all of Christ is the only thing that matters. Aiming for Christ doesn't administer poverty of spirit. It reveals to you how destitute you already are. Aiming for Christ doesn't make you mourn. It opens your eyes to your sin and the brokenness in this world, so you mourn. Aiming to see Christ doesn't make you feign humility. It reveals the truth about yourself, which makes behaving in a meek way the only natural possibility. Aiming for Christ doesn't make you hungry. It reveals to you that you're starving already and only, only, only Christ provides a banquet of righteousness. If you aim for happiness for happiness sake, you'll never get it. You'll never, ever get it. Hear that today. If you aim for happiness for its own sake, it's a carrot on a stick that will only lead you straight to destruction. But the way to the blessed life is not by aiming merely for the blessing, but by aiming to have Christ himself. So let's look at these four Beatitudes and listen to Jesus. And I'm going to turn to talk about how we see, how we feel, how we act, and how we ache. I'm going to talk about how we see, how we feel, how we act, and how we ache. Once we see with the eyes of the kingdom, once we're born again, once we see Jesus as the Christ, we'll see ourselves in light of his kingdom and be poor in spirit because of that. We will feel in light of the kingdom and mourn our sinful condition and the brokenness in the world. We will act in light of his kingdom and be meek people and we will ache in light of his kingdom, and be hungry for righteousness. So first, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Many scholars point out that this is first for a reason, and there exists a logical progression throughout the Beatitudes. Poverty of spirit is first for a reason. It's foundational to every single thing that comes after it. Blessed is the man who has this kind of attitude about himself. 
poverty of spirit. Blessed is the man who sees himself rightly. And let me say this has zero to do necessarily with having or not having money. Men who are wealthy can be poor in spirit and men who don't have a penny can be entitled in spirit. It doesn't have anything to do necessarily with material wealth. It isn't about money. It isn't about what you have. It's an attitude. It's a disposition. It's a posture. But it's not a natural attitude or disposition or posture. This is a spiritual disposition and attitude and posture. This is not being born with a proclivity for modesty. This isn't just having a docile personality. This isn't naturally being demure or shy. Poverty of spirit is a spiritual reality. It takes eyes of faith to see yourselves rightly. And let me make a point here to say that the Beatitudes, all of them, are spiritual conditions. You don't know an unbelieving person that can demonstrate truly the Sermon on the Mount. You don't. You just don't. This way of being in the world is impossible without the living Spirit of God working inside you. So if you're intimidated by the sermon at this moment, if you're intimidated by what it demands, it's because you're looking in the wrong direction. It's actually not about you. If you're intimidated, you're looking in the wrong direction. Stop thinking about how you can be this guy or this kind of guy and get your eyes on Jesus. Get your heart on Christ. Get your mind on Christ. Get over yourself, but never get over Jesus Christ. Poverty in spirit is spiritual, not natural. And it's not self-pity and it's not sullenness. It isn't pouting or being morose or sulky or gloomy or glum or moody. Poverty of spirit doesn't manipulate the situation to get attention or to get coddled. Poverty of spirit is what gives us a clear understanding of our own heart and its own wretchedness. The Bible's clear about our sinful condition. And when we see Jesus rightly, we become heart stingingly aware of our own sin as well. But the mopey spirit that's wallowing and self-absorbed isn't poor in spirit. The poor in spirit recognizes their own state, but that sends them to Jesus in praise and worship and affection and focus. It doesn't send them back to themselves in focus. When we make much of feeling bad, we aren't so much feeling bad as we are looking for attention. And if we really see our lowly state, we wouldn't bask in it. We'd run to Jesus and eat. When Peter saw Jesus, when he saw who Jesus was, Luke says he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. He didn't do that to get attention. He didn't do that so that Jesus or his friends would say, no, you're not. You're okay. It's not that big of a deal. Get up. This is awkward. He didn't. Peter's reaction was one of pure, accurate reality. Jesus didn't say, oh, Peter, I'm sorry that I made you feel that way. Peter's response was purely, purely, supernaturally accurate. 
Peter's reaction was pure, accurate reality. We belong on our knees before the Christ of God. We belong on our knees before the Lord of Lords. We belong on our knees before the King of Kings. We belong on our knees. And the very first place that we belong on our knees is inside of our own heart. That's what poverty of spirit means. Does your heart want to bow down or does your heart want to be lifted up? Does your heart want to bow down or does your heart want to be in charge? Does your heart want to bow down or do you want the praise and power and attention? Does your heart want to be bowing down or do you feel entitled like God owes you because you kept your end of the bargain? And friends, it doesn't work that way. One day, and it is a real day, every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And until, they, until that day comes, we do constant bowing down in our own hearts, in the disposition and attitude of our own hearts. And blessed is the person who does because his is the kingdom of God. Next, a person with poverty of spirit very naturally will mourn about his own condition and the condition of the world around him. There's a logical step here. Peter also shows this to us when he, when he says, I'm a sinful man. When you see the gap, when you see the gap between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of ourselves, you will weep over it. You will feel a certain way about yourself and about what's around you. You'll see yourself and that will connect to your heart. You'll mourn and weep and be sorrowful. We'll look at our hearts and our sinful desires and we'll be crushed. We'll mourn over our pride. We'll mourn over our arrogance. We will mourn over our constant battle with idolatry. And again, this is a spiritual reality. To be heartbroken over sin is God's kindness in operation towards you to lead you to repentance and experience true light and life and salvation. There's a hardness that exists that no longer mourns in a spiritual way but only has worldly grief. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. Godly grief produces repentance. Worldly sorrow produces death. And there's no comfort. Spiritual mourning, mourning that is given through the Spirit of God, is the kind of sorrow that will be comforted. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says it this way, Woe to those who laugh. Pretty plain. Woe to those who laugh. You will mourn and weep later. Laughing right now is the posture of the world that says elsewhere in the scriptures, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Get as much pleasure as you can now. Laugh it off. Laugh it off. Don't worry about anything because tomorrow we die. But that's not the end. The world organizes billions and billions of dollars in order to get you to avoid any kind of spiritual mourning. The world spends energy and time and resources to convince you that you don't have to be sad about your sin or the sin in the world. But here Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn because they're the ones who are going to be comforted in the end. Jesus' life again and again and again, is the most profound example of these Beatitudes in action. He was a nobody with a nobody appearance. Jesus was a man of sorrows. 
And he was a man that was acquainted with grief, the scriptures say. He wept over Jerusalem. He endured betrayal. He wept over the death of Lazarus. He endured beatings. He suffered on the cross because of the joy that was on the other side of it. That's comforting. If you find yourself enduring sorrow and someone comes up to you and says, it will be worth it because what's on the other side of it will be more joyful and pure and wonderful than anything you could ever imagine, that will function as comfort for you. That promise works that way. The mourning that comes from seeing our sin and seeing the world is a spiritual sadness. And this spiritual sadness comes with a promise of comfort. Next, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When one sees himself and the Lord rightly, He's bowed down in his heart and he is sorrowful for his sin and the sin in the world. Therefore, he acts in the world from that perspective and that is how meekness works. This is wonderfully countercultural. Our world says blessed are the aggressive, blessed are the go-getters, blessed are the impatient, blessed are the assertive. Blessed is the rugged individual conquering everyone in his path. Blessed is the corner office and the stock options and the seat of notoriety. But this is not the way of Jesus. One scholar points out that we all don't mind so much making biblical assessments of ourselves just as long as other people don't treat us like they're true. And I'm just speaking to Christians in the room right now, but if you're a Christian and you've acknowledged your sinful state, you've confessed to God and others that you're hopeless without the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf, then you know that you're not a good person. You're polluted with sin, you're contaminated with sin, and you acknowledge this in your prayer time. You acknowledge acknowledge this in a conversation between you and God, but what happens when somebody in your life treats you like that's true about you? Because that moment is a test of meekness. Meekness isn't cowardly or weak or wimpy. Meekness isn't shyness. Meekness is when you're treated poorly and your flesh doesn't flare up and take emotional control. If you truly believe that you're poor in spirit, then why do we get so bent out of shape when we are treated poorly? And you might not do anything, you might not retaliate, but that instantaneous, instinctual kind of bristling is what exposes our entitlement. That's the opposite of meekness. This is why I say, again, these are spirit-wrought attitudes and dispositions. We are wholly dependent on the Spirit of God for this. They're not natural personalities. No one's like this on their own. Naturally, we might compromise. Naturally, we might avoid conflict. That is not meekness. Naturally, we might aim to be people-pleasers because we're afraid of what they'll say or do. That isn't being meek. Naturally, you might be calm or quiet or shy, but that is not the same as meekness. Jesus spoke with authority, but then he tells us he is meek. 
Jesus possessed all the power in the universe, and yet he was meek and lowly of heart. Jesus endured mocking and scorn and derision. People spit in his face, and he didn't do anything about it. Think about that next time somebody doesn't use their blinker. Or cuts in front of you in line. Meekness isn't letting injustice run rampant. Meekness is not letting injustice run rampant. Meekness is fighting for justice, but not because of your own entitlement. See the difference? The meek man fights for justice, but he is not demanding his own rights. The meek man cares about virtue, but never because he believes he deserves something. The meek man knows that every single second of his life, he's being treated better than he deserves, but that isn't a bumper sticker or a platitude. It orients his internal disposition. If you want to test your own meekness, think about the next time your heart rises up with the spirit of this phrase, how dare they? How dare they treat me this way? How dare you talk to me that way? The spirit of that phrase is the opposite of meekness. And even if we don't say it, we feel it. When our preferences are stepped on or our principles or our comfort is challenged, we feel it. We know it. We don't like it. But even, even in this life, You don't have to wait for the freedom that comes from being a meek person. You don't have to deal with internal retaliatory emotions. For the meek man, for the meek man, the mass of revenge doesn't make any sense. And the mass of forgiveness makes all the sense in the world. That is true freedom. Friends, there's no one in history, there's no one in the history of the world who had more of a right to say, how dare you, than Jesus. And he never said it once. He never even thought, he didn't do it, he didn't feel it, he didn't treat anybody that way. He didn't even consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a a servant. We want to grasp a hold of equality with a crossing guard. We want to grasp a hold of silly things. We want to grasp equality with meaningless titles. But we don't have to. We don't have to feel that way and we don't have to live that way. We don't have to be slaves to entitlement or self-righteousness. And I want you to be free from that. I want us to get cut off in traffic and not have a judgmental bone in our body. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about meekness in his, uh, in his sermons on the Beatitudes. To be meek, to be meek in other words means that you have finished with yourself all together. That's freedom. And you come to see that you have no rights or deserts at all. You come to realize that no one can harm you And you say with John Bunyan that he who is down fears no fall. 
Blessed are the meek because they are going to inherit the earth. And people who live this way ache. They ache. They are hungry and thirsty people. Again, Luke chapter 6. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. You see, if you're full and you're fine, if you no longer hunger or thirst for the righteousness of God, you're in a bad spot. This is why Jesus says that he came for the sick. The healthy don't need a doctor. The point wasn't that some people are sick and some people are healthy. The point is is that there's only two kinds of people in the world. The ones who are sick and know it and admit it, and the ones that are sick and know it and refuse to admit it and go on deceitfully refusing to believe it and pretending to be something they aren't. And Jesus wants to be the doctor to whoever will admit that they're sick. Jesus is saying that the poor in spirit will mourn and have a right view of their station and they'll long for the very holiness of God. They'll long for that separation between our sinful condition and the holiness of God, for that to be fully, completely bridged forever. They'll hate their remaining sinful corruption. They'll hate how their heart is divided. They'll hate how their flesh wars against their spirit. They'll hate being contaminated with sin and they'll long for holiness. And that's just not something that feels very good. Being hungry and thirsty doesn't feel good. In fact, it just keeps getting worse. It's hard and it's painful, but blessed are the hungry and thirsty only only. The full and content are not happy. A human being cannot experience true happiness without knowing that they need righteousness that they don't have. A human being can't find true happiness without feeling the ache of the gap of who we are today and who we will be eventually when sin is completely banished forever. And and that's a deep and painful yearning. Blessed are those with spiritual appetites for those are the people who are going to be satisfied. So this morning, if you don't have a spiritual appetite, don't make peace with it. If you're a Christian in the room and there's no hunger or thirst in you for God or for Jesus or for righteousness, don't make peace with it. They're they're the kinds of reasons, these are the kinds of reasons that Christians fast because they find themselves making peace with it so they stop eating so they can help themselves feel it again. They literally quit putting food in their body so they can feel in their body what's real and true about their soul. That's why we fast. We abstain from food so that it sinks in and we get it so you can say prayers like, God, I am starving. I can barely even concentrate. Remind me, I need you a million times more than I need any food or any water or any air or anything else except you. You need Christ more than you realize. And he, in a very real way, in specific way, and even through the metaphors in the Bible, offers you living water. 
He offers you his body and his blood. He says unless you eat his body and drink his blood, you'll have no life in you. He is the only place to find life and satisfaction. He's the only place to find a blessed life. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. It is given to us. Jesus died so that we may die, and he lived so that we could live, truly live. He alone gives life. So I'm excited again to finish the sermon this way and come to the table and eat. God is always spreading a banquet of his goodness and mercy and kindness in front of you and saying, come eat this, quit eating that. Quit eating at that other table. It won't work. It only makes you more hungry and it'll make you sick. And so Christ proclaims his death and resurrection. Christ gives thanks for the body and blood and he offers it to his disciples and says, you got to eat my body. You have to look for me. And he's looking for hungry people. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to welcome the, uh, the servers to come up in a second after I pray and the musicians to come back up. Let me give a quick instruction. The way we take communion at Redeemer is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into the cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. We will have stations down here in the front. We will have a station in the balcony. And then we'll also have a station that is gluten-free and single serve over here off to the left of the table that's down here in front. And we'll also have prayer ministers underneath this stained glass window who would love to pray for anybody about anything. You can't do the Sermon on the Mount. But the Spirit of God through you will work this in you to obey it, to embrace it, to feel it. So I want to invite the Spirit of God to apply um, the truth of the Scriptures to us in a little deeper way, in a way that transforms us this morning. I want to pray and thank God for his body and blood. And I want to welcome anybody who is trusting Jesus for their righteousness to come forward and eat. And if you're not a Christian in the room this morning, man, um, I, would, I would challenge you. I would say, like, as... Um, as a fellow traveler person in this life who's found out that he was poor in spirit with joy and freedom that it brings, like is whatever you're looking to, whatever program for the good life that you are implementing, is it doing it for you? And if it's not, I challenge you to maybe look to Jesus for the first time. Let me pray for us and then we can come up and eat. Jesus, thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. Thank you that you were crushed Thank you that you paid the ultimate price for all of our sin. Thank you that you uh, made a way for the Spirit of God um, to give us direct access to, to be sanctified, to change, to transform. Give us, um, give us zeal to live this way. Give us a passion and a desire and a burden in our heart to live this way. Give us a desire and a passion and a burden in our heart to embrace the true freedom that the Sermon on the Mount offers us, the freedom of being poor in spirit, the freedom of true meekness, the freedom of being hungry people. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus.
Amen. Come up when you're ready.